now read from Acts 12. You can find the scripture on your bulletin or on your phone or your Bible if you brought one. And it's, so it's Acts 12, 1 to 24. Kind of one of my favorite stories. Okay. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this meant when he saw that this meant with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He saw it. He was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to the door, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Syria and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy. A long passage, but a great story. 
It's, a, it's one of the funniest stories in the Bible. We'll get into that in a few minutes, um, or a little bit into that in a few minutes. Um, but let me start this way. Uh, <clears throat> there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he tells them, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when he says that, <clears throat> excuse me, when he says that, he's implying that the gates of hell will try, at least, to prevail against his church. He's implying that there is a battle going on between the kingdom of God and what you could call the kingdom of darkness. And in fact, in the book of Acts, where you have the birth of the church and the early, uh, early uh, kind of development of the church, you see this pattern unfold time and time again. You see the gospel advance, and then as soon as the gospel advances, boom, you see some kind of attack from the spiritual forces of evil trying to fight back against this advancement. And so you get the of darkness, and in the book of Acts, that battle uh, rages quite dramatically. And we see it actually in, in today's story as well, because it says <clears throat> in first uh, 1, it says, it was about this time, which means Luke is referring to the time that's described in Acts chapter 11. And we looked at that last week. In Acts chapter 11, you learn about this remarkable church in Antioch, right? Uh, it, it's firing on all cylinders. It's people who are hungry for the word, people who have been transformed by the gospel, people who came straight out of their totally non-religious background or non, I should say, Christian or, or Jewish background into the Christian faith who were hungry to learn about Jesus and they became extremely generous people. So they, they made a collection for the church in Jerusalem. It was a, it was a, remarkable, a remarkable place. And yet... It was about this time, Luke says, that far away from Antioch in the city of Jerusalem, something else was happening. Persecution was intensifying against the church. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story from Acts chapter 12 and try to discover what we can learn from it, not just sort of for the time then, but for our time today. Because what we need to understand is that this story is our story. I don't mean that this story, Acts chapter 12, is our story in the sense that it actually happened to us. What I mean is, is that this story of the Bible, this story of God creating a world that was good, it falling into sin, Him calling a people for the sake of mission, Him uh, that climaxing in the person of Jesus Christ, who after He died, He rose again, and He ascended into heaven, and then He sent His Holy Spirit on His people, called the church, and told them to spread this good news of the kingdom of God into the world. That story that Acts is about is the same story that you and I are about. So this is, we are part of this story. The themes of this story are our reality too. It's as much true today as it was back then. So, let's have a look at the story and see what we can learn about what it means to be church and to be a follower of Jesus Christ today as it relates to what we see it meant some 2,000 years ago. So, 
first scene, we're going to look at it in terms of scenes, right? Because this, I mean, this would be a great movie. Well, maybe not, I mean, maybe this episode is too short for a whole movie. Um, but you know what I'm saying. We're going to look at it, the scenes, okay? So scene one opens with this violent attack by the forces of darkness. And that's described in verses one to four. Herod arrests James and has him killed and then uh, decides to arrest Peter as well because he wants to put him to death also. And uh, it, it shows that there is of the forces of evil against God's church, which is the force of good. All right, so we got a classic story of good versus evil, right? Now, who's Herod? Who's this Herod character? He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy who tried to have Jesus killed when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And you remember he had all the babies, all the male babies, two years old and younger, uh, killed because he wanted to get to this rival king. So that's Herod the Great. He's the grandfather of this Herod, okay? This is Herod Agrippa. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod that had John the Baptist killed, okay? I know there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, eh? it gets a little confusing. And there's a lot of Jameses in the Bible, which is kind of confusing. Anyhow, I'll try to help work this out. So the point is, he's got Uncle Herod, who's a really bad dude and hates uh, the Christians. And he's got Grandpa Herod, who was a really bad dude and hated any rivals to his kingdom as well. And so he comes honestly, I could say, you could say, by this, this hatred toward Jesus. He loves power. He is willing to do anything to maintain his power, and so he takes all... <coughs> Hold on a sec. Something's going on in here. So he takes all the power and venom of his office and he unleashes it on the followers of Jesus Christ. But he's also an opportunist because it says that he had James killed. Now, that's not James who wrote the book of James. That's James, the brother of John. Remember uh, the sons of Zebedee who were part of Jesus' uh, disciples? So it's that James that he has killed. And he discovers that the Jews really like that. Yeah, killing the, the apostles, the followers of Jesus, that's a good idea. And so he thinks to himself, well, if I kill one apostle and I'm popular, imagine how popular I'd be if I killed two apostles. So he has Peter arrested with the intention of having him killed too. But he's also a hypocrite because he, it's Passover time and the law states that you're not allowed to put people to death during the Passover, so he has to wait till Passover is over until he can actually have Peter put to tri uh, trial and then put to death. But he's such a hypocrite that when Peter escapes, he has no problem having his own soldiers killed, even though it's during the Passover season. Now, why am I ex explaining all this about Herod? Here's why. What it shows about him is that Herod is all about Herod. He will do anything to maintain his power. He will terrorize innocent citizens. He will appeal to the basest instincts of his constituents. He will manipulate the justice system. He will violate his own religion's rules. 
because he is his God. And he will resort to violence to protect his lordship over himself and over his country. And you know, you cannot help but realize that there are regimes out there today that operate very much the same way. Two prime examples are China, North Korea. I know that doesn't happen here. We're not in this kind of situation. Uh, but it's still happening around the world, like I said, China, North Korea. And, and even though it doesn't happen here, you know, Jesus, when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you, per why are you persecuting me? Because you see, to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. And so even though it's not happening here to you and me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord, whom you love, who you say lived the life I should have lived on my behalf and then died in my place for my sin, even though I wanted nothing to do with him, he came and he did that for me and he rescued me from myself and I love him more than I love anything else in this universe. They are doing that to him. And we should be outraged. We, if your, imagine if your blood brother or sister was arrested for believing in Jesus. You'd be furious. And you'd be desperate. You'd be outraged. You know, Wang, Wang Shu, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to say his name, but the best I have is Wang Shu. He was the pastor of early early reign covenant church in china i've been telling you a little bit about him over the last months his he was arrested he was tried he was jailed i forget how long his sentence is but but this all happened in 2020 19 and 20 not the year 50 a.d now today in our so-called civilized world it happened then and it happened now. And I just want to appeal to you in your prayer time, and I'll explain why it's so important in, in, in a few minutes, but in your prayer time, would you remember the persecuted church? Would you remember the Wang Shoes of the world and the many others who are actually physically imprisoned, separated from their families, perhaps even beaten, sometimes put to death? simply because they proclaim this Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, now, let's think about this. What was Peter's crime? What was Peter's crime? Why all this security? If you read it, it's kind of overkill, right? 16 soldiers, 16 guards, three sets of bars. He's asleep, chained between two guards. Who is this guy? Is he some kind of, like, I don't know, sociopath, serial killer, insurrectionist, insurgent, like leader of the insurgency? Is he like Osama bin Laden or something like that? No, he's a humble fisherman. He's a humble fisherman who happened to preach about this guy named Jesus. And who's this guy named Jesus? This guy named Jesus was a man who lived in Judea, grew up in Galilee, and he did good he took care of the needy. He gave sight to the blind. 
He raised people from the dead. He promised them a, a, a life. He was merciful towards sinners, towards the people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. He actually entered into relationships with them. He comforted the brokenhearted. He forgave the guilty. How is he a threat to Herod? Not once anywhere in the New Testament do you read about Jesus or any of his followers saying, you need to overthrow the government. Nowhere. And yet, and yet, he was such a threat. Why? Why are the followers of Jesus Christ and why is the gospel of Jesus Christ such a threat to the powerful? Here's why. Because the weakest believer is an embodiment of everything that the kingdom of darkness hates. I'll say that again. The weakest believer is the embodiment of everything the kingdom of darkness hates. Now, what do I mean by that? You got to follow, follow my train of thought with me as we go back to the text. Verse 5 Verse 5 is a fascinating verse. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God in him. Peter's in prison, the church is praying. Here's what you have. In this corner, you have Herod and his soldiers, and his military might, and his political power, and you have all his strength. And in this corner, you have a sleeping apostle and a praying church. It's like Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All of you who thought Conor McGregor had a chance, you were suckers. He never had a chance tiny little nobody. You have Goliath and you have David. But here's the thing. What does, God, what does God's people do when they are facing such a massive opponent? They don't go on a march. They go on their knees. They don't go and organize a public protest. They enter into private prayer. And it shows something about them too. Herod's behavior shows something about himself. The church and Peter's behavior shows something about them. Herod wanted to be his own God and in control of his own life. And the church wanted to submit themselves to the true God. And they said it's not about their own life. It's about the will of their heavenly Father. And that, my friends, is why the church is always a threat to the powerful. Because you see, the church says, I'm not the sovereign. And neither is Herod. And neither is the chairman of the People's Republic of China. No earthly power, in fact, is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And you see it here because they're praying for Peter, right? Verse 5, they're praying for Peter. But up in verse 2, it says, He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And that means that they've been through this before. They've been in this moment before. They've been here before. 
James, an apostle, was arrested as well, and they were in prayer for him too. I'm sure they were in prayer for him too. I'm sure they begged for his release, and it didn't happen. I'm sure that they had a, an all-night prayer meeting pleading with God to, to release James and protect his life too. And God, for some reason, said no. Did God not answer their prayer before? No, no. God always, you've got to understand something, friends. God always answers prayer. But sometimes God says no. He does. You know, you want something. You think it'd be a good thing. You search your heart and you say, God, I think that this would be a good thing, not just for me. This would be a good thing for your kingdom. This would be a good thing to bring glory to your name. People, if you answered this prayer, God, the world would stand up and take notice and say that this Jesus, he must be something else. Look at what he's done for his church. And you think to yourself, it makes all the sense in the world that God would answer this prayer and give me a yes. And God somehow, for some reason, says, no he still says no but they don't stop praying you see they don't stop they plead for Peter they didn't say well it didn't work last time why bother forget it and here's why it's because they know it's not about them. It's not about their agenda. It's not about their wishes. Those things aren't ultimate. What's ultimate is God and his plan of redemption. The whole gospel story is about that. And friends, you and I, we are simply a part of the story. It is not about us. We simply play a part in this grand story. We're called to play our part in this story always, just like James. Just like James. Why did James have to die? We don't know. And sometimes you will be called to play a part in this story where you do not know why you are being called to play that part. And it will terrify you and it will hurt you and you will be afraid and you will struggle and you will want to ask yourself, why God? And he may not say why. You will simply be called to play your part because it's not about you. Friends, you and I, I'm not saying you and I when I say you and I. What do I okay, that made no sense. When I say this, I'm not talking about you in particular. You tell yourself if I'm talking about you in particular. I'm talking about the evangelical church in the Western world. We have basically adopted in many ways the story of Western culture and added the Christian story to it and basically made the gospel about us. We're part, he is part of our story. The real story is me getting my thing. The real story is me accomplishing my goals. The real story is me feeling happy about my life and finding success and finding pleasure and finding supposed to come alongside and help me with that. And here we have the exact opposite. We have people whose lives are fully and completely dedicated to God, and they say, even if I don't know the purpose behind my part of your story, I realize that your story is the real story. 
Your story is the ultimate story. Your story is the one that matters. Um, I am, uh, I'm watching this show right now, and it's about, what's it about? It's about uh, what the 1960s would have been like if the Nazis and the Japanese had won the war, had won World War II. And it's in the United States mostly, but basically, so the United States is being run by the Nazis on one part of the country and uh, the Japanese on other part of the country. And of course, there's a resistance, right? Just like there was during World War II. There's a resistance movement, and the resistance movement has a leader and uh, all these participants in the resistance. But what is so fascinating, okay, about this is that you don't exactly know if every character is part of the resistance, who seems to be part of the resistance, or if a character who seems to be part of the Nazi Reich or the Japanese Kempatai are actually part of those bodies either because there's so much intrigue and questioning and, and the leader of the resistance is constantly like making decisions that don't make sense and so stuff that you think shouldn't happen are happening, like, like resistance people putting other resistance people in jail or, or trying to kill them or... or uh, 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 sabotaging their own efforts and it doesn't make sense to you because you don't realize that it's all part of a much, much bigger plan. And especially the leader, he's giving these orders that, that, that seem wrong or seem downright foolish or, or seem useless. Ah. But it's all meant to overthrow the enemy. It's all meant to overthrow the enemy. And that happens for us too, friends. People prayed for James, and God said, nope. People prayed for Peter, and God said, yes. And it's so funny. You know, I, I don't know how much of the Bible is comedy, but there's a lot of comedy in this story, okay? Because here's Peter. He is on the verge of death. He knows what happened to James. He knows his turn is coming. And what's he doing? Dude's sleeping like a baby. Wouldn't you like that? I mean, you don't have near the anxiety issues that Peter had, and you can't get like six hours. And here's Peter. He's completely at peace, sleeping like a baby. Maybe that's one of the things that they were praying for him. An angel arrives and literally has to like elbow him in the ribs and say, get up. You would think the arrival of an angel, even for the deepest of sleepers, would rouse us, right? You know, I all the bright lights and stuff, like I need darkness when I sleep, so if you turn a light on. But it doesn't work for Peter. And, and he's all groggy, and he gets up, and he says, get dressed. He's like, okay, I'll get dressed. And he thinks it's a dream. He thinks it's a vision. He follows this angel all the way out of the jail. And remember, past three sets of bars, and it's not until the angel leaves him, and in verse 11, where it says, Peter came to himself. Like, he finally had his Starbucks. And he's like, whoa, I'm free. This is crazy. And so what does he do? He goes, okay, I know where the church is. So he runs over to the church and he bangs on the door. Bang, 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 bang. And Rhoda comes to the door and Peter says, Psst, it's Peter. And Rhoda's like, nah, man, Peter's not here. You guys know what I'm referring to? Yeah, that Cheech and Chong thing? You, sh you shouldn't know what I'm talking about. But, um, anyhow, it's, I, I, I'm sorry. When I read it, that's totally what I thought about. 
no, you're not here, man. Um, it's Peter. It's Peter. What? It's Peter. Oh, oh, my goodness, it's Peter. And she runs to the pyramid. She goes, it's Peter. Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, it can't be Peter. He's in jail. No, really, it's Peter. Oh, it must be his angel. No, it's really Peter. Would you stop interrupting our prayer meeting, please? We're praying for Peter. And meanwhile, Peter is outside going home, man. The cops are coming. Bang, 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 bang. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me in. You've got to let me in. And they finally let him in. Now, here's, here's, the, amazing, here's the amazing thing. What this means is, is, on one level, here's this church fervently praying, but they're not praying all that expectantly. Right? Because they're surprised that it actually is Peter. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? Hoy, oy, oy, can I relate to that? How often my prayers are so weak, I pray and I'm like, yeah, right. But here's the wonderful thing about God. He's so gracious. He'll even answer that prayer. There's a place in Ephesians where Paul says, God can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. And he did it right here for this little church in Jerusalem. What's their weapon? Prayer. That's their only weapon against the vast resources of King Herod. All they have is prayer. It doesn't look like much, eh? But but God is so big. Because God is the true king, guys. He's the real king. Herod wasn't the real king. The chairman of the People's Republic of China is not the real king. Donald Trump is not the real king. Justin Trudeau is not the real king. No matter what their resources are, they are not the real king. Our God is the real king, and our God delights to answer our prayers. So ask big prayers. There's a great story where Alexander the Great, is, uh, he has a soldier come to him, and the soldier asks him to pay for his child's wedding. And Alexander the Great says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to pay for the wedding. Go see the treasurer. A few minutes later, the treasurer comes to Alexander the Great, and he goes, okay, you sent this soldier and told him that he could ask for me to pay for, uh, ask for you to pay for his wedding. Here's what he asked, and he, he had some exorbitant sum, like just ridiculous off the charts. He asked for so much. And Alexander the Great, reportedly, he smiled, and he said, give it to him. The guy's like, what? What do you mean, give it to him? And he says, he gives me a double honor. He, that's our God. Okay, final scene. Herod. After this episode, he goes ballistic. He has all his, he has all his soldiers killed because that was sort of the rule if you, you know, your life for their life. And he leaves and he goes from Judea to Caesarea. He returns to the capital. That was the capital of his, uh, of his uh, kingdom. And he has to deal with a very different constituency this time. It's not Jewish people, but it's non-Jewish people from Tyre and Sidon. And uh, they need food from him, so they're, uh, they're, trying to, uh, they're trying to suck up to him. And he sits down while wearing, Luke says, his royal robes, and he gives an oration. Now, it is reported that Herod 
had robes that were made out of silver, that were woven out of silver. So when the light shone on them, they just sparkled like crazy. Okay, so now you know where, where these comments come from, right? And they see him shining brightly in the sun, and as he speaks, and them, knowing what side their bread is buttered on, they say, this is the voice of God and not a man. And Herod, oh, he loved it, man. He loved every word of it, the adoration and the worship. And Luke says, Luke says, what does he say? He says in verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, he was put to death. And apparently he was put to death quite horribly, uh, it was not uncommon in the Middle East, particularly in that time, for people to get worms. And what would happen is, is worms would, I don't know, you'd get more and more worms. You'd get like a whole ball of worms in your intestines, and uh, they would burst. And then you would die from the bursting of your intestines and the worms eating you inside out. Isn't that a lovely picture? Josephus said that it took about five days for Herod to die, and he was in utter agony. And then listen to the last words of the story, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Now here's what we need to see. The chapter opens with James dead, with Peter in jail, with Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the gospel triumphing. If you are a Christian here this morning, I hope that you take great courage from this. The enemy can feel so big, and I'm not even talking about people. Mark and I were talking about this this week. There, there, is these, there are these ideologies, there are these, these, these beliefs, these worldview perspectives that are just, they weigh so heavily upon us. You go out from this place, and maybe you're feeling like, yeah, God's awesome, and, and I believe the truth and the gospel true, and then tomorrow you wake up, and you're full of anxiety uh, about the week, or you're, you're feeling the pressure to, uh, to perform and accomplish things in school or at work. You just, you just feel the weight of the, ideology, of the ideologies that are pressing in upon you, and the enemy, he can feel so big, so strong at times. What is it like to be Wang Shu right now? Sitting in a, who knows what a Chinese jail cell must look like? thinking, here I am in prison. I have no rights. I'm in China. What are the chances of me ever being freed? But it's not about us. It's not about Wang Shu. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about, it's about Jesus and his mission for the world. And that the courage comes from realizing that he will not lose. See, if you're betting on God getting you out of your personal jam so that you can have a happier life, you're betting on the wrong horse. 
If it's not about you, if it's about his story, then your bet has to be in, look, he will accomplish his plan, which ultimately will bring my, my liberation as well because Jesus will return and usher in his new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where I will be free from all the things that are hindering now. But in the meantime, my greatest joy is knowing, my greatest courage is knowing that the church cannot ultimately be defeated because Jesus will build it and the gates of hell will not overcome it and if you're not a believer there's a bit of a sobering lesson here you, you know the, the, the very popular saying right now wrong side of history you know whenever ethical issues morally questionable issues are being discussed right now people say well you know they're on the wrong side of history naturally, that is outside of the intervening work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are all Herods. We are all Herods. We do not give praise to God. We want it for us. But if we would trust, and if you, who are now on the wrong side of history, if you would put your trust in this Jesus, you too can sleep peacefully like Peter did, facing his own death. There's an old praise song. I don't know how often it gets sung anymore, but it goes, uh, one day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly serve you now. Come. Now is the time to worship. Let's pray. Father, what a story. What an amazing story. Thank you for this story. Grant us Uh, may we be convicted by the story when we make our relationship with you all about ourselves, but may we also be encouraged by the story because uh, it demonstrates to us quite powerfully that you, you will make good on your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not, will not, will not prevail against it. May we leave this place, Father, more committed to living out of the truth of that story with more joy and with more resilience, with less anxiety, with greater confidence. Not because you're giving us what we want, but because we know that we are yours and you've got us. And you've got this whole world and all of history in the palm.